Komosome Kong! and salutations creature lovers and welcome to the first episode of no more room in hell presents creature comforts i am mr venom and joining me for this new adventure in uh no more room in hell land uh first and foremost one of my co-hosts on the main no more room in hell show and also on underwater kaiju from outer space he is mr derek b how you doing derek Hey, what's going on, everybody? Salutations to everyone. Uh, I'm very excited for this new project that we have in the mix for this. Awesome. And uh, also joining me, another No More Room in Hell alumni. He comes to us from the Fresh Cut Show. And this is Mr. Don Anelli. How you doing, Don? Hey, what's going on, folks? Uh, absolutely. Couldn't be happier to start this new show with you guys. Awesome. So, obviously, if you guys are listening to this show, you are more than likely subscribed to the No More Room in Hell feed. This is now the third in the family of No More Room in Hell shows. Uh, This is something that Derek and Don and myself just kind of got together and decided because of, you know, maybe some other shows that we're a part of that have been on extended hiatuses or just, you know, uh, just for the love of the subgenre. We decided to get together and do this show. So let me tell you a little bit about the show. As we already mentioned, it is called Creature Comforts, and we are here specifically to talk about creature features. And uh, I think uh, the first thing we should do is kind of talk about a little bit of our history, uh, where we developed our love of creature features, you know, what kind of experience, what some of our favorites might be as well. Um, things like that. So let's go ahead and bring in Derek. Derek, tell me a little bit about your history with creature features. Well, I think uh, my love for creature features, actually, I was actually writing this out, ironically enough, for another uh, thing <laughs> uh, that hoped is published in a certain magazine that I am a part of uh, collecting now. But uh, it, it came from when I first discovered VHS and Probably my first experience with VHS was Suncoast Video, which is now a debunked uh, video store, as everyone knows. Uh, but I used to love going there. They had tons of VHS that I just couldn't get enough of, you know. That's when I first saw, like, the Anchor Bay clamshells and shit like that. But uh, I think 
you know, the Universal Monsters is probably my go-to, where the Creature from the Black Lagoon was probably my first creature feature that I ever seen growing up. My first, like, giant monster movie, as most people that know have listened to me, was Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla in 74. Uh, I think it was either under the Bionic Monster or the Cosmic Monster title. You know, there's, like, various different titles for that movie. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I was just hooked for that. I love giant monster movies. Then I dug in deeper, like, with Beast from 20,000 Phantoms. Uh, then, uh, I just love, like, the symbolism of, like, creature features in general. And, you know, uh, different types of them, too, like giant insects, reptiles, uh, mutated monsters, uh, the beer from Prophecy, everyone. Better sleeping bill bad kill than... Jason Voorhees, come on, you know. But uh, <laughs> uh, I just love the subgenre because there's always, especially with the different time periods, it's just interesting. Like another movie I remember growing up watching uh, when I was a kid was the movie Bug from the 70s, which was about exploding cockroaches. <laughs> it was weird revisiting that recently because I was actually more intrigued with like a, the person like studying the cockroaches more than just the actual cockroaches it was a weird like pseudoscience like character study piece in the middle of that movie that i didn't realize when i was a kid it's just interesting aspects like that and you know you, you get some different ones like the you know the nature run amok subgenre but i love those too because you get scenes like lizzie nielsen fighting a bear come on you gotta <laughs> go with that <laughs> You know, you get some iconic shit out of that shit. And, uh, you know, I even like some of the sci-fi channel stuff. Uh, it It's fun for the most part. Uh, some, you know, some of the CGI is kind of, it's there. It's a thing. But, uh, you know, I still dig it. You know, it's whatever. You know, I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I grew up with Roland Emmerich movies, so I'm like, yeah, that's CGI is shit, but I, I can still watch this. <laughs> you know? Wow, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Uh, Don, why don't you come in and tell us a little bit about your uh, backstory with Creature Features. Okay, uh, so Creature Features were pretty much my introduction to movies. Um, the original Rodan <clears throat> the original Rodan was the, the uh, first movie I ever saw. Um, switching from, you know, reading Rainbow and Thomas the Tank Engine and the Magic School Bus and all of that kind of, you know, like, kiddie stuff from like the 80s and all that and then going into Rodan was like the first experience I ever had with like an actual movie and and I just remember just you know being so awed by what I was watching just like the visuals and like the spectacle of it all like that was really like ground zero for me was just seeing seeing like the spectacle and the visuals and the creativity just you know doing something that I never would have ever or dreamed of or seeing sites I never really imagined before just seeing them put together it just it changed me and warped me and you know for the better I would say um, shortly from there you know from Rodan you know you figure Godzilla's not you know just a hop skip and a jump away and uh, uh, from there it was pretty much just you know a continuous onslaught of like 50s and 60s creature features you know Derek already mentioned a lot of the best ones but you know some of the other ones that stand out uh you know uh gorgo uh 
the giant behemoth. Um, I even have a you know fun appreciation for stuff like the Black Scorpion and them, and you know even something like uh, Beginning of the Ends, which um, you know more than likely I hope we'll cover those at some point sometime mm-hmm. down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, turning over into horror, um, creature features were pretty much a big part of uh, my interest in the genre as well. Um, I remember uh, just around the time I entered high school, I remember um, I, it was either sci-fi or USA, and I want to say sci-fi, but I'm not too sure. Uh, they ran a uh, series of made-for-TV movies on that I was like just instantly hooked on. Uh, stuff like the Toby Hooper crocodile movie or um, Octopus, uh, Spiders, and what was the fourth one? Oh, um, yeah, Shark Attack 2. Um, mm. Yeah, they aired all of those as made-for-TV movies. And, okay, so... Strange thing I know, but at that point, my life was basically, you know, horror I thought was, you know, the big four slashers, Stephen King, Scream, and Chucky. Like, that was it. Like, that was what I knew. And seeing these, it was kind of like, okay, you know, let's have some fun. And, you know, you guys know me now as the Sharknado guy. I'm absolutely, un, you know, I'm unopposed by it. I willingly embrace it. I'm sure my next co-host is going to more than enthusiastically claim love for that particular franchise as well. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, creature features are still one of my favorite genres. Uh, you know, I don't really I don't really have too many that I actually dislike. Um, more than likely it's just, you know, inept execution or, you know, just shoddy techniques and stuff like that, but ninth Times out of ten, these are the ones that I'm the most <clears throat> most lenient on, and the ones that I have the most fun with. So, yeah, um, whether it's a giant monster, an animal run amok, science run amok, or just you know some alien creature on Earth, I'm always down for one. So, <laughs> looking forward to seeing where this takes us. Awesome, excellent. Um, as far as I'm concerned, um, I actually got into the creature feature game a little late, I will fully admit. I am a child of the 70s, teenager of the 80s. I'm easily the oldest podcaster on this show, but um, I, I will fully admit that the, the 70s completely escaped me when it came to creature features. My mom was a big horror movie fan, so we used to go to the drive-in a lot, and we'd see stuff like Horror Hospital, Blood Eaters, just a lot of the really cool mid-70s, you know, drive in uh, schlocky horror films of the time. For me, the first time that I really, really got into creatures, I'm not even sure if you guys would even consider this a creature feature, but it would be Ray Harryhausen's final film, 1981's uh, Clash of the Titans. Uh, The first time I saw Clash of the Titans, my mother took me to see it in the theater, and I just absolutely fell in love with both Medusa and the Kraken. I'm like, how the hell... Uh, did, did they pull this off? Because I hadn't been exposed to like any of the Sinbad movies yet, any of like the classic 50s creature feature stuff yet. Um, this was literally my first experience, and I literally watched that movie with my jaw dropped pretty much 
the entire time in the theater. Every time a new creature would come up on the screen, uh, I, I would just flip out, like, how the hell are they doing this? Did they find humans that are mutated into these creatures and they put them on film? So, yeah, movie magic definitely wowed me early on. But once uh, Clash of the Titans went by, I dove headlong into creature features. That's when I started really looking into Godzilla films. I believe the first Godzilla, really the first kaiju film overall that I ever saw, probably was 1972's Godzilla vs. Gigan. And I know that's not really one of the stronger Godzilla films. In fact, some people might consider it one of the weaker ones. But I guess because it was my first exposure, it's not my favorite Godzilla film by any stretch. But I will fully admit that Gigan is my favorite Godzilla villain. Um, I, I, I thought he did a great job in that movie. I mean, hey, he's the first villain to make Godzilla bleed on film. So, I mean, that's huge to me. And then when he got his update in the 2000s with his uh, basically his chainsaw hands, I was really into that redesign as well. So, yeah, I'm solidly a guy again when it comes to villains. Obviously, Big G is the man. My love of Big G cannot be, you know, overstated. Uh, we'll never miss a theatrical run of a Godzilla movie. I think ever since, what, Godzilla 85, I'm batting 100% on seeing them in the theaters. And, you know. Godzilla will I, I will fully admit that Godzilla films and Kaiju is going to be the majority of my creature feature love. Now, obviously, over the last 20, 30 years, I've gotten into a lot more of like modern stuff, um, you know, stuff like The Thing. If you want to look at that as a creature feature, stuff like Slither, I, I will solidly say that Derek and Don have a more uh, blossomed love of the subgenre. I, I am definitely a late comer to it, but I'm catching up. I am I am just poorly uh, deficient on Ray Harryhausen films. I just started buying them up a few years back. And now, you know, stuff like, you know, like Derek mentioned, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and the Sinbad movies are like some of, you know, my favorite things to watch now. So, yeah, I'm I'm slowly catching up to you guys. You guys will definitely carry the pedigree for uh, creature feature expertise on this one. But, yeah, I'm going to soak up as much of that love as I possibly can. That sounded really gross, didn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, talk to me about some of your favorite um, creature features of all time I, I know you mentioned a couple while you were talking about your backstory with them but you know throw me a couple that you know really really speak to you that maybe aren't either the most popular or just they you know you gravitate towards them whenever you feel like a creature feature let's start with don this time okay um, so uh, one of the ones I did mention is one that I've always championed for a long time called uh, The Black Scorpion, um, which is one that I think got overlooked by a lot of the uh, other 50 sci-fi films, but it's always one that I I, uh, I always champion as a underrated or underseen film, um, whichever term you, those you want to use. Um, even though it's schlocky as all hell, um, I always have a lot of fun with The Land Unknown, which is a uh, dinosaur film, not necessarily a true creature, but like a dinosaur movie. Um, let's see. Uh, it's been ages, but I always remember having a lot of fun with both of um, the the uh, you know the other non Toho Daie uh, kaiju efforts with um, X from Outer Space and uh, Gappa the Trifidian Monster. I always thought those were uh, a lot of fun 
And, uh, I mean, like I said, um, I, I tend to gravitate, you know, with horror, I tend to gravitate to, like, the schlocky, goofy stuff. So I'm, I'm gonna probably say, I know this is gonna be crazy, but one of my all-time favorites is Ghost Shark. Hey, to each his own. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to give you an idea of the love for that one, um, I did a podcast with um, No More with uh, NFW, mm-hmm. and it was one of the best experiences I've ever had podcasting. So, <laughs> um, oh, 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 uh, God, how can I say this now that I mentioned it? Because I said this during the episode itself. If we're going for creature features, Ghost Shark is the schlocky one. If we're going for the serious ones, Alligator. Nice. Yeah. Yes. Alligator. Classic Gator. Yeah, um, I only remember that one because I remember bringing that one up during the podcast. So very cool. Yeah. So. Um, nice. I'm gonna jump in here. Um, man, it, now that I think about it, it's funny because I didn't actually prepare an answer for this question. I knew it was something I was gonna ask, but um, you know, obviously, I'm a kaiju guy, as you and most people who listen to our shows know. Um, obviously the Heisei era of Godzilla is the one that I tend to gravitate towards. So stuff like Godzilla versus, um, Destroya, Godzilla versus Adora, you know, those are some of uh, my favorite ones. I'm, I'm even warming up to Biollante. After we reviewed Biollante on, um, Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space, Jerry made a lot of great points that kind of opened my eyes a little bit to that one. Cause that was honestly one of my least favorites for a long time, but, um, it was really cool to hear someone else's opinion on it who's very high on it, and it kind of, like I said, it opened my eyes. So um, obviously kaiju stuff, obviously, you know, um, as I mentioned, I'm catching up on Harryhausen, but I've always been a gigantic fan of uh, – I've already mentioned the Sinbad movies. Again, borderline creature feature. You've got some stop-motion creatures in there, the bull from Sinbad and the, the Seven Deadly Sins, stuff like that. Or the Seven Voyages of Sinbad. I'm sorry. Um, so yeah, there's like different movies like that. When it comes to modern stuff, I actually am very okay with CGI monsters when they're done properly. Obviously, um, the legendary Godzilla movies is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. I, 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 my nipples still get hard when I watch that movie. <laughs> it, it is so stunning, and watching it at home in 4K, you know, with my big old sound bar. It, it doesn't quite reproduce that theatrical experience, but goddamn, does it come really, really close. Um, stuff like Monster from a few years ago, that was one that had a lot of social commentary between the mother and the daughter's character and how they were kind of reacting to the situation and even a little bit of a, you know, a bittersweet ending with one of them surviving and, and talking about how they were going to move on. It, just something, you know, movies that have a lot of social commentaries tend to speak to me more. My last name is Cortez. I am a minority. So it's one of those things that I see social commentary maybe a little bit more um, blatantly than others. And King Kong, I mean, once we get into our, you know, feature review today, you know, I'm, I'm, we're going we're to talk about a lot of that social commentary, both from 1933 and even to, to modern times. Um, if you want to talk about the 2005 King Kong, lots of social commentary in there as well. But, you know, we'll get to that when we get to it. Um 
I've I've found myself gravitating towards like alien creature features, stuff like Deadly Spawn. Uh, I mentioned uh, the thing earlier. Slither is another one that I'm a really really big fan of. I don't know. I think I'm a big fan of like the grosser, slimier kind of bulbous <laughs> creature features. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, a big fan of the Blob, of course. Um, pretty much with the original and the remake, fairly equally. Like they both have. Their pluses and minuses, obviously way more pluses than minuses. But yeah, I love them both for two different reasons. Obviously a great cast in the original, but then, you know, you, you kind of counter the remake with uh, a lot nicer effects and things like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'll be the first one to admit Creature Features isn't necessarily my favorite subgenre of horror. Um, most people know I gravitate towards Supernatural and Zombies, but I'm definitely... Creature features are definitely starting to catch up. Um, you know, I'm I'm starting to get. I, I don't want to say I'm getting sick of slashers, but you know, the, the, uh, the day of the truly original slasher is, seems to be escaping us. Even though you know, recent *Malignant* was pretty cool. You know, obviously, I'm I'm looking forward to the rest of the legendary uh, you know monster verse that that's uh, pretty much in in prime prime time right now. Uh, earlier this year with the release of Godzilla versus Kong, which, you know, kind of ties back to what we're talking about today. Uh, another great film, uh, hopefully something that we'll talk about here someday, because I know I haven't had the opportunity to talk about that on a show yet. And I am greatly looking forward to it because, folks, I got a lot to say about Godzilla versus Kong. But uh, we'll get to that <laughs> when we get to it. Um, let's go to Derek. Derek, uh, tell me about some of your favorite creature features, buddy. All right. All uh... right. Yeah, I actually have a few answers, so I'm going to feel a bit. Uh, first, for Harryhausen, 20 Million Miles to Earth is probably one of my favorites. I love uh, the look of the creature in that, Ymir, or Yermer. How do you pronounce that, Don? Ymir. Ymir, yeah. Ymir, yeah. Uh, I actually have a... Emer figurine that actually came with my uh, Ray Harryhausen box set, uh, made from the actual molds that were used to make the prosthetic. <laughs> it was actually kind of cool. Uh, I'll show pictures of it on the Facebook group or something later on, once this episode comes out. Uh, yeah, uh, I also love, uh, like I said, them. I love giant ant movies. Uh, them's pretty great, but. Empire of the Ants might be my jam. I love that was one of the first ones I ever seen, and that's a very interesting one. It has some weird commentary within it that I dig. Uh, Bird Eye Gordon, I love his stuff. Usually, yes. like Food of the Food of the Gods is another one I dig a lot. Uh, for more later day stuff, uh, I, I know you guys know I love this movie, but I love Rampage. It's a guilty pleasure type movie for me. Uh, <laughs> I got I got to say, buddy, I know I've said thank you multiple times, but you picked that up for me for my birthday last year, and I got I got to one hundred percent agree with you. It's an absolute guilty pleasure. I'll never sit down and say it's a quote unquote great movie, but every time I watch it, I have an absolute blast. So yeah, thank you again. Yeah, yeah. Like once Leslie Leslie comes into the picture, I'm like. That's my favorite creature in that movie. It's fucking great, you know? It's like, yes, this is awesome. I love everything that's happening right now. I don't care about the plot at all. You know, I did a review on it on my other show, so listen to that. I tell you about, like, what I think about the villains of that movie. Retarded. But, uh, yeah, uh, for, like, 
I'm a huge fan of Frankenfish, actually. That's one of the better early sci-fi channel movies. Uh, you know, which I was actually hesitant to watch because the first thing I see is from the director of Spawn. I'm like, yeah, I'm not ever watching that. But then I watched it. I'm like, that's not bad, you know. <laughs> it's got to be better than Spawn. It is better than Spawn. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. And there's actually some twists that I wasn't expecting with that, like certain characters that die and shit. It was kind of cool. Uh, that's a fun, fun one. Uh, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of other ones that, you know, it's hard because there's a bunch that I have in my head. That, you know, it's like that. And you just rush to get them out. You know, it's good stuff, though. I like I like a lot of shit. Like like I said, Buggy from the 70s. I'm a big fan of, like, Creature Run Muck, like, Grizzly. Prophecy is probably one of my favorite jams because, man, that beer, he fucks that kid up and then sleeping back. <laughs> I just, I just watch that scene repeat over and over again, and just every at any time I'm in a bad mood, I just watch that scene. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I skipped the whole. Obviously, I um I I tend to speak faster than is uh for my too fast for my own good. I guess is a good way to put it. I skipped an entire uh time of my um some of my favorites, and that's Universal Monsters, which Don was. Uh, Don brought it up a little bit during his segment, and um, I, I completely skipped over that because I, I am also a huge fan of Universal Monsters and a lot of the 50s stuff, like the stuff that Don mentioned with them, the Black Scorpion. Uh, I'm a big fan of Attack of the Shrews, um, the Giant Claw. Uh, I love the Black Scorpion. I actually put the Black Scorpion up there with them. I know a lot of people look at them as like the pinnacle of these yeah. creatures. I love the Black Scorpion, and yeah, I am biased uh, because I love scorpions. I used to raise scorpions when I lived in Pittsburgh, um, so and I have a couple tattooed on me, so I am a huge fan of scorpions as a creature. So obviously, I'm going to be a little biased with the Black Scorpion, but that was one because that was a um, a Mystery Science Theater, which I'm sure Mystery Science uh, three, Mystery Science Theater three thousand is going to be a show we'll probably bring up periodically as we uh, go through our little adventure here because um, they handled a lot of creature features. A lot of the ones that we actually mentioned, uh, Mystery Science Theater handled, uh, you know, did riffs for. And, you know, ultimately, when I watch one of those riffs, I never get any kind of hate. You know, I, I never feel like they're making fun of these movies because they hate them. There's a genuine love and an affinity for these films that these uh, Mystery Science Theater and Riff Tracks guys do. So, yes, expect to hear them brought up every now and then. I'll try to limit it because it is one of my favorite things ever in my life and this is not a mystery science theater podcast so we'll you know i'll, I'll try to limit my references of that but yeah it's going to come up a lot when it especially when we're talking about stuff like the giant claw the uh, the black scorpion cue the winged serpent things like that the yeah Atlantis, you know <laughs> yeah that's another one yeah i remember that one oh yeah oh corman we'll be talking about corman a lot i'm sure on this show um but yeah, man, what else can we talk about our about our backgrounds? Um, obviously, I mean, we could talk about a little bit. Obviously, uh, some people already know us from Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space. Obviously, um, you know, that show is still active on a minor little bit of a hiatus, but something that will be back sooner than later. Uh, you know, we're going to try to concentrate our kaiju love on that show and try to stick more solidly with uh you know just pure creature features here but you know who knows where we'll get some crossover here and there yeah. uh 
Mm-hmm. Anything new that you guys are looking forward to? Any creature features on the horizon that maybe that look like might be interesting? Obviously, the MonsterVerse will continue. There haven't been any announcements of any new films there in the Legendary series, but with the amount of money that those movies are making, the fact that Godzilla vs. Kong during a pandemic still made over $70 million, I mean, that's freaking huge. So um, I figure that franchise is going to continue going. But I mean, is there anything that either of you guys are kind of looking forward to in the future? Uh, uh, there's one, but I'm not really too sure how creature feature it is. And uh-huh. that's antlers. Uh, ah, yes. Because antlers is a kind of like a Wendigo type story. So I'm curious how they handle that subject matter in the movie. Uh-huh. Uh, that's a new one that I've been waiting for since last year. You, you know, uh, there's there's a few that, you know, off the top of my head, I'm, you know, I'm always curious to see what's coming out. Don, do you know anything that's coming out? Um, Venom, we brought it up at the end of Fresh Cuts last week, didn't we? It was supposed to have been first week of November. Um, yeah, well, the last date that I saw was actually... October 29th, which doesn't make sense because um, Last Night in Soho is also coming out October 29th. So maybe that date was incorrect. I'm hoping first week in November because I hate when two big horror titles come out the same week. I'm going to see them regardless. I mean, that's not really the issue. It's just it's more a matter of free time than anything. You know, you still got to get out to the theater, blah, blah, blah. So is that because I remember we were talking about it last week at the end of the show so i was trying to remember because i know we brought it up and i know we brought up the conflicting uh dates and stuff but yeah Yeah, um i I think it's either going to be it's probably either going to be sometime just before or just after halloween yeah (laughs) Yeah. very cool did did what the hell is this did sharakuda ever come out or is that still in pre-production i haven't heard anything Take a look here. I remember I, I was looking at a list of upcoming um, creature features last night. Actually, there's not even a production date. Pre-production was 2017, so uh, don't know much about this one. There's a movie poster here that has what looks like a shark, but with barracuda teeth. That looks fairly interesting. Definitely looks like something that could have come out of the asylum, but yeah. Um and then a lot of the stuff on this list has already come out, actually. So this this list must be pretty outdated. Stuff like Cobra, Gator, uh, Lion, Redwood. Yeah, these movies all came out already. Antlers, you know, who knows if, if that's going to be. Uh, for those who don't know, I'm sure most of you already do. I don't watch horror movie trailers. So it's the kind of thing where I'm not always 100% sure what a movie is about. All you need to do is tell me it's a horror movie. I'm going to go see it. I don't need to see a trailer. Um, I, I'd rather just be surprised and, you know, have everything new to me when I go see the film. So, you know, fingers crossed for Antlers. Obviously, Guillermo del Toro's attached to that one. Potentially one of my favorite directors ever, if not the favorite, my favorite director ever. So um, fingers crossed for Antlers. Uh, I guess that's all we have right now for intros, folks. Hope you enjoyed our intros to uh, our history with creature features. We're going to go ahead and take just a short, short break. And then when we come back, we will have our first feature review, which is, of course, 1933's King Kong. See you in a bit.
much it'll be up in lights on Broadway. Come, the eighth wonder of the movies were made. Adventure to make you wonder if it's true while your eyes convince you that it is. Truly the thrill of thrills. Don't miss it this time. Welcome back, folks. That was the trailer for the original 1933 King Kong, which, of course, will be our feature review for today. Uh, once again, King Kong, 1933, directed by Marion Cooper and Ernest Shodsack. Shadesack? However you want to pronounce Shodsack. I like it. Uh, written by James Ashmore Creelman, Ruth Rose, and once again, Marion Cooper, getting a credit, getting a writing and directing credit. And, of course, the movie stars the lovely Faye Ray, who, by the way, I had forgotten how genuinely attractive Faye Ray is. Um, legitimately, I hadn't watched this film in easily over 20 years. And um, when she first comes on the screen, I was I was actually floored. I was like, whoa, I completely because she's genuinely pretty in the sense that it's not makeup. You know, her beauty doesn't come from excessive makeup or hairdos or anything like she has a, a natural beauty to her that just was kind of striking, especially for 1933. Um, so, yeah, yeah she's sticking all the right areas, too. Exactly. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course, one of um, filmdom's greatest screamers ever i mean what, what an epic scream that she has e- even even in the film when she's playing an actress doing a scream for the camera it sounds just as awesome as the her real screams when she actually sees kong obviously the epic scream when she's tied up on the altar and you know we get our first iconic look at king kong uh, both for the the claymation full shot, the the full body shot, and then of course the close ups with the animatronic head. Well, animatronic as as animatronic as it could be in 1933. Obviously, there was probably guys inside of that head controlling everything manually. You know, very few mechanics involved yeah. in that. But. Um, so yeah, I mean, let's get into it. Obviously, you know, um, a film crew goes to a tropical island for an exotic location shoot and discovers a colossal ape who takes a shine to their female blonde star. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's do general thoughts first. It's something that we're all comfortable with and then we'll kind of get into the meat of the movie. I don't think there's really much to spoil at this point. This movie is, uh, almost 90 years old at this point. I'm pretty sure everyone knows how the movie ends and the iconic final line of the film. So on the very, very off chance that you haven't seen King Kong, this will be a spoiler filled review. That will be your final warning. So let's go ahead and start with Don. Don, tell me about your first experiences with King Kong and then your general thoughts over. All right. Um, so I first saw this one 
not long after I got into uh, movie movies in general. Um, uh, basically, uh, one of the initial um, one of the initial things I did when I first got into movies was I went to um, a store and I picked up a VHS called uh, Fantastic Dinosaurs of the Movies, which is a VHS I still have to this day. And it was a trailer compilation, trailer reel, you know, all that good stuff. And one of the big films on that trailer compilation was King Kong. So it was something I thought, okay, you know, it's in my mind. It's in, you know, it's out there for me. I'm going to, you know, try to find it. And luckily, not long after I found it on TV, initially, I wasn't a huge fan of it. Um, Even though I had already seen, you know, Godzilla and I had already seen... Oh, I'd seen the original Godzilla, and I, you know, I started my movie watching history with Rodan, and I had seen a couple of other fifties um, monster movies by this point. I wasn't a huge fan of Kong when I initially saw it. I thought the pacing was a little off. It, you know, the thirties acting kind of looked a little stilted, and I wasn't a really, a, I didn't really think much of Kong when I first saw him. You know, he looked just, you know. It was like a giant monkey. He didn't really like look special like Godzilla did. He didn't look special like any of the other giant monsters I saw. You know, it was just a giant monkey. You know, you know, like no big deal. So I wasn't. It wasn't uh, an immediate love affair with the film, but it was one that I thought, okay, there's some good parts here. It's just, you know, it's not as good as these other stuff. So I'm gonna gravitate to that. I gravitated to those more than Kong. Um, but I've really come around to it um, a lot. Of, uh, a lot of the more recent viewings, um, I I love the film. Uh, one of the big things for me with this one is uh, I, I've actually come around to the pacing of this one. I've come around to the tempo. I know this is going to sound blasphemous. I still like the 76 version the best. I think that's my favorite of the three King Kong films out there. But I really still I like the pacing of this one. It's a lot zippier. It's a lot faster you get to the island a lot faster than you know the other two which is a big plus you have a great crew um you know the acting i've come around to i've come around to the special effects um you know a lot of you know the original thing with kong that i never really initially caught on to was the fact that when he moved you can see like all of the like fur rippling on him and initially i thought that was you know, I thought that was just like, you know, really hokey and silly and just kind of like, you know, took me out of it compared to like the smoother and like the more fluid Godzilla and Rodan and Gamera. And like, you know, the suit acting looked a lot more realistic than the stop motion. But like the one thing that I realized like growing up was that, you know, all of the ripples are like the fingerprints left on by the model, the model makers when they're manipulating the the, the statue of him for like the shots and all that. So I was like, oh, okay, that makes, you know, that makes more sense. It's like, you know, okay, yeah, you know, I, I get it now. You're like, a lot of learning, like, the behind-the-scenes stuff, I kind of developed more of an appreciation to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, I still prefer the 76 version. That one just hits for me a lot more. That one just hits for me a lot more than this one does. But I, I still really like it, and I still have a lot of fun with it. And it's, I would probably say, even though, you know, I I still prefer the 76 one as a piece of entertainment, I would still mm-hmm. say this one is the best made of the three. 
that's the one thing is that I think this is still the best made of the three and is the one that I would always push on people. Even if I'm gonna, you know, choose to watch a movie of the three, it's gonna be the seventy six one. So Oh, that's understandable. I mean, obviously we have multiple generations of King Kong from thirty three, you know, all the way to twenty twenty one, so there's many iterations of the creature. Um, Toho had their chance with them with the original uh, Kong versus Godzilla. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's a lot to choose from out there. I, I'm i going to come in here now with my general thoughts. Um, this is my preferred King Kong. Now, that's, that's with the caveat of me saying that I absolutely adore Skull Island. I love Skull Island so much. And with Skull Island... A lot of it is the human characterizations. Like, I I just love that story, that part of it. Yes, King Kong is there. He's the big bad, you know, the big, the 600-pound gorilla in the room, literally, if not figuratively. And, um, but everything that Skull Island does with all of the characters, with Samuel Jackson and John Goodman, um, just, that's the one that I would gravitate towards if I wanted to watch one, uh, if I wanted to watch a King Kong film. But... When it comes to 33, this movie is an absolute monumental achievement. I mean, when you when you watch the Criterion uh, Collection uh, release of it and you watch all those behind-the-scenes footage, it's just amazing the trouble that they went through. Some of the shots, like, you know, they, they, can, go, they can do your basic force perspective shots that we see in a lot of kaiju movies. But they were doing they were using a technique with multiple projectors that was so revolutionary at the time. Um, There's a shot in the movie where Godzilla is up on a cliff and our human uh, hero is under him in a cave and King Kong is kind of reaching towards him. That was done with a mini projector where they're actually it wasn't like superimposed in uh, the post-production process or during editing. They actually shot it like that. They actually shot and projected the human character in the lower part of the screen and then shot, you know, the claymation, or excuse me, the stop motion King Kong above it. And honestly, I think that shot is one of the nicest ones in the film as far as like human and King Kong interaction in the film. It looks really nice. There's other shots like where King Kong is um, shaking the log. I think that shot looks amazing for 1933. And I also wanted. Now that I said that, I also wanted to bring up that I, I I say a lot that something in King Kong looks good, quote unquote, for 1933. And honestly, I know consciously that I shouldn't say that because this movie, even in 2021, is still impressive looking. It's not about the fact that it was made in 1933 and that back then it looked great. Jurassic Park will always look good. It didn't matter that it was made in 1994 or whatever year Jurassic Park came out. Um, so, you know, forgive me if I continue to say for 1933, it comes out instinctually, but honestly, I don't really mean it. The movie flat out looks great. That one shot I was just talking about with Kong shaking the log, that shot is stellar. I, it is amazing the way they were able to correct the lighting to make it actually look like Kong is there shaking. Now, obviously, there's imperfections to the shot. You can tell that the log is actually being shook by, like, chains on the set. But it still – it works so nicely that you have to appreciate what they really 
uh, put together here. Once again, Faye Ray's performance, uh, stellar. I absolutely love her performance here. She has a charm in this movie that I had completely forgotten about. She she is so charming that she wins over everyone. Like, no matter how salty someone in this movie is, within five minutes of being around her, she's won them over. And and that's impressive, that, you know, because it, that's not just good looks. I mean, good looks will get you so far, but that's also a legitimately charming personality. And that's what Anne Darrow has here. Uh, or Darrow, however you want to pronounce it, um, Faye Ray's character. I, I just absolutely think that her her performance is just subtly brilliant. I absolutely love it. You know, we've already talked about the effects. Um, I'm going to save my social commentary spiel uh, until we get a little bit deeper into our discussion. But yes, there is social commentary here. Sometimes, um, depending on the viewer, there might be additional um, social commentary. Like I could see a black person watching this film and potentially seeing more commentary than your average Caucasian watching the film. You know what I mean? Um, but like I said, we'll get into that here in a little bit. Um, but overall, yeah, I, I adore this movie. Uh, I, I'm with Don. I wasn't the biggest fan of this when I first saw it. And I, I will actually fully admit that I saw the 1976 film first. That was my first exposure to King Kong was Jessica Lange, the big, you know, bodacious Hollywood presentation. Um, and, and that's how I always looked at King Kong, bigger than life, larger than life, you know. Um, so I went back and watched the 1933 as my second venture with King Kong. And I will fully admit I wasn't as big a fan. Um, I had heard stories about them cutting out the spider attack scene, which sounded awesome, but apparently they cut it out because uh, test audiences didn't like it. Some people actually walked out of the theater during the spider attack uh, in the original King Kong. So, of course, they released it for its uh, official release, and that footage, to my knowledge, has it's never been seen. I mean, they cut it out, and they just pretty much lost it. It might be out there. I mean, who knows? There might be an obscure YouTube channel that actually has it, but it, it was nice to see um, you know, Peter Jackson kind of bring that scene back into his King Kong. And even in Skull Island, we got... You know, we didn't get the spider pit in Skull, in Skull Island, but we still did get a couple of the giant spider, you know, creatures there in the bamboo forest. So that was cool. So, yeah, overall, I really like this movie. I don't have any issues with the pacing. I watched this again last night and was thoroughly enthralled. I mean, at no point was I bored. Um, you know, some intentional comedy here and there, especially interactions between Faye Ray and the uh, not the skipper, but the guy that she falls in love with. Um, was that John? John, John, John yes, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, like I, that's a perfect example, too, of like when when he first speaks to her, he's like he's really salty. He doesn't like her. But literally within two minutes of being around her, suddenly he warms up to her. And, you know, again, that's just Faye Ray's charm, um, you know, going to work. But, um, yeah, overall, love the film. Um, not quite a 10 out of 10, obviously. I, I, I would say it's a 10 out of 10 just for its importance. I mean, ultimately, it kind of, you know, you could give it credit for starting or at least popularizing the giant creature subgenre. Um, and it will, you know, it will forever have its place in cinematic history. I mean, it's one of the most important American films ever made. And yeah, I mean, well, you, you can't overstate the importance of this film. So I'm going to go ahead and shut up now because I've gone on long enough. And let's go ahead and bring in our boy Derek 
to talk about his first experience with Kong and his overall thoughts, or his general thoughts, I should say. Uh, uh, actually, the weird thing is, uh, the first time I ever seen this movie, <laughs> it's actually funny. I watched the colorized version. I had the Turner oh, no. class. I had the Turner uh, VHS of this film, and uh, that was an experience. Uh, it actually it was weird because when I was because re- I never knew this until the you know the the Blu-rays and the, I didn't know there was like, like an overture and shit of this movie that came out like on the new releases of it until then you know because it just started with like the credits and then went to you know Turner has some interesting choices for colorizing movies but like I say they're all great and you know it's like it's whatever it's like the same argument. Now, where everyone wants to watch every movie in black and white now, you know? Like, <laughs> it's like the reverse, you know? <laughs> but uh, I always dug this movie, you know? Actually, ironically enough, Venom, uh, uh, King Kong 76 was my first King Kong movie, too. <laughs> you know, I dig it. It's cheesy, but I still love it, you know? I gotta actually pick up that Blu-ray of that one soon. Uh, but uh, I always like this film. I think it's perfectly paced. It's a lot more paced than the, say, uh, that Peter Jackson one, which I still like, but that the, the whole power in the boat thing, they could have cut most of that boat shit out of that movie. <laughs> they're, they're legitimately on the boat for an hour in that one. But, uh, but, uh, yeah, this, I dig this one. You know, I love, it's just a phenomenal movie, you know. It's ahead of its time for special effects. Without this movie, we probably wouldn't have a lot of the special effects we have today. You know, and it's very coarse with stop motion. I love Willis O'Brien. Uh, you wouldn't have Ray Harryhausen without this movie. We wouldn't have a lot of people without this movie. And their arrays of special effects uh, that it was influenced by this. You know, without this movie, we wouldn't have a lot of the movies that we have today, it, it's just an important film. It's a milestone. And I get that. Even We wouldn't even have Godzilla without this film. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, a lot of the makers of Godzilla loved King Kong. Eiji Tsuburaya, his favorite movie was King Kong. Uh, and I love the, all the performances of the actors. Uh, Faye Ray's great, but my favorite's going to be Robert Armstrong as Carl Denham. He's my <laughs> preferred Carl Denham. Uh, he's just yes. fantastic in the role, and I grew up watching him in this. Uh, uh, not so good sequel to this, Son of Khan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he's the best part of that movie. And, uh, of course, Mighty Joe Young. He's great in that, too, the original mm-hmm. Mighty Joe Young. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like... Every time I watch this, I find something new. And, you know, I always love hearing the history and, like, certain aspects of people that watch this movie and what they think of it. And, like, it's different commentary and different uh, weird commentary for the era it came out in, especially with, like, you know, know, like, uh, the native stuff in this film. But we'll get into that when we get a little bit deeper into it. Yeah. Big thumbs up for King Kong for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about the effects. We've talked about some of the stars of the film. Um, one of the kind of underappreciated heroes of this this film is the score. I, 
I know a lot of people have problems with like scores from like the twenties or thirties because they're very loud, very brassy, very um, almost invasive at times. And as I'm watching this last night, I'm realizing that every scene where there's some kind of Kong attack um, and the music kind of swells up, it never really felt like it was slapping me in the face, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? It, it was doing a great job of really heightening the tension. And then even like during some of the more calm scenes that are more dialogue driven, uh, the score just perfectly comes in with that somber, uh, slower, softer music that once again really sets a tone. So I, I, on this viewing, that was probably the thing that really stuck out to me. Uh, what do you guys think of the score uh, of the original Kong? I dig it. Dig it. It's you know, especially like when you listen to that overture of it. Yeah. When it first happens while a Need for Speed happens outside my house. Sorry about that. <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I I dig it, especially when you hear that overture. It it was very very interesting that aspect where uh, you get to hear like a lot of the music it sets you up for like the then the title sequence comes on da da da. You know, it's very rambunctious. It, it fits the tone of the movie. It's an adventure movie, especially with like some of the like you know, it's like it's King Kong's theme is like the Raiders of the Lost Ark theme. You know, yes. it's like it's, it's like up there. You know, it's like you know, shit's gonna happen in this movie that you've never seen before for uh, the time period it came out, and I like it. I like it. Yeah, yeah, I, I will fully say that the King Kong, the main King Kong theme might not be quite as iconic as you mentioned Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'll mention Godzilla. Godzilla, I mean, when you hear that music, there's no denying it. I've heard so many remixes of the original Godzilla theme, and every single time within three notes, I know what it is. It, it's so just iconic. Uh, King Kong may not be as iconic, but I know to fans, um, you know, people who've seen this movie multiple times, it is still recognizable. Maybe it's just not as recognizable. Um, Don, how do you feel about the score? Uh, uh, I mean, yeah, if a Kube guy on the uh, group. So um, he's always been the guy that I've always looked to for, like, great scoring and stuff. But, yeah, um, I, I definitely. Agree. I like the the way that it kind of like enhances like the spectacle where it's you know like a lively adventure you know action scenes and then it kind of like you know picks up in, in intensity and it you know like the like the run back through the jungle when they're trying to get to back to camp before Kong gets them like they're running through the jungle like that's a fun theme song there mm -hmm. and I mean yeah you know you heard it all throughout the trailer a few minutes ago like the main like brassy bouncy theme you know that dun 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 dun, dun, dun like wherever that thing goes it's like you know you can tell like that's like a really big bolsterous kind of theme for like a big like like a big bc animal and yeah i really kind of like it it's definitely grown on me not necessarily as much as like the godzilla theme sure. songs but yeah it's probably like one of the other top ones up there in the in the scene for me at least absolutely yeah definitely all right folks uh Let's go ahead and bring in the elephant in the room, and that's going to be, of course, a lot of the social commentary that this movie kind of addresses. There's multiple themes of commentary throughout it. I think first and foremost, um, ultimately, will be racism. Um, there, Honestly, there is a near unanimous agreement among scholars and critics that King Kong is a kind of racist allegory. 
um, you know, symbolically depicting like white America's view of black people at the time, you know, something mysterious that they don't understand that feels kind of savage and animalistic, if you will. Um, you know, ultimately, the U.S., you know, as a society, we've been marred by social and racial issues throughout. But think about the time period too. think about this is 1933. We are less than 50 years removed from slavery. I mean, you know, less than 50 years ago, black people were slaves in the southern part of the country. And, you know, a movie like this comes out showing, you know, white Westerners going, you know, off to a mysterious island, which, you know, again, as you watch it now, it becomes a little bit more obvious. But the fact that the Islanders, quote unquote, are basically just black people in this movie like they're not polynesian they're not hawaiian they're not filipino they're they're straight up african american yet they're islanders so you know obviously working with uh maybe some of the uh i don't know um just lack of knowledge of uh you know places like that in 1933 obviously there's no internet there's no television there's barely radio to get information so um, you know, a, a, a cinema and television, well, maybe not even television. What am I saying? No television in 33. But I mean, cinema is really giving people a lot of history and ge geographical lessons in, in this time period. Mm -hmm. So when the, the, when they see a movie like this, uh, you know, they see an island full of black people who worship a large, hairy black gorilla. Um, obviously, you know minorities are going to look at that instantly and be like, Oh, okay. So that's how you look at us or, you know, something along those lines. It may not be, it may not have been the intention of the filmmakers. Obviously commentary is rarely the intention of the filmmaker. It's something that we as viewers pull out of it. And King Kong, obviously, you know, between the themes of racism, colonialism, nature run amok, um, you know, other other themes like that, uh, people are going to notice this stuff. And whether they're right or wrong, it's still a valid conversation to have, because, you know, as I said, as individuals, we watch these films, we kind of take what we think they're saying or, you know, kind of what they're getting at. And, you know, sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong. But with a film like this, it was pretty much universally believed that there was major themes of racism involved. Um, Derek, why don't you talk to me a little bit? Like, as you watch Kong, are you, does that kind of stuff, is it glaring? Or is it the kind of thing that you don't even really think about um, as you're watching the film? I, I did notice it more on this rewatch that I just did recently than I ever did before, because I just heard it brought up more before I actually rewatched the movie until this point, you know? And it's weird, because... A lot of the movies that came after this one, the unfortunately, uh, a lot of like the you know Godzilla movies that featured Kong, or like Gappa, the Trifidian monsters, they mm -hmm. try to make their like natives black and have <laughs> blackface. So that movie, you know, this movie influenced some bad things in other cinema, <laughs> you know, in that sense. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, that this is the first interpretation of natives that I ever seen in a movie. So, and I think it's a lot for a lot of the other people that were influenced by this movie. So that could be a little iffy nowadays, you know, sure. you know, in that sense. And it, it was weird because there was actually this comment made by like one of the people that was sitting down in the theater later in the New York sequences and they're like, oh, I think it's a big monkey. Oh, if I wanted to go see a big monkey, I could go down the street in downtown. Like, mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Whoa. What the? Well, what does that mean, you know? <laughs> you know, like, I didn't, I yeah. didn't, never heard that line before. I'm like, what the fuck? You know, like, yeah. <laughs> you know. One line Whoa. that struck me. One line that struck me on this viewing is uh, from Charlie, uh, the Chinese kind of um, cook on the ship. After they discover that Fay Ray's been kidnapped, he literally goes up to the skipper and says, "Crazy black man been here," and I'm like, "Oh damn! Like, who the fuck are you to call the black guy crazy?" I mean. I don't know. It, it just struck me as very, very odd to see one marginalized group talk badly about another marginalized group. I'm like, ah, only in 1933. <laughs> and even, even that character is kind of like a racial stereotype from the time oh, period. Big time. And, yeah. and wow, I don't know if it makes me racist, but I am so sorry. I had to turn on the subtitles to understand what Charlie was saying. That that scene where he's peeling potatoes, I barely understood what he was saying. And then, even after I turned on the subtitles, there was still a line. I don't know if you guys watched uh, this with subtitles on or not. This is literally word for word one of the lines that Charlie speaks in the movie. Ocean, very nice when you order weather or some <laughs> eggs for breakfast. What? Mind you, folks, a weather spelled W-E-A-T-H-E-R. So he's basically talking about the you know natural phenomenon of weather. Okay, let me repeat the quote. Ocean, very nice when you order weather or some eggs for breakfast. That's literally word for word what the subtitles said. Now, mind you, the subtitles could be incorrect. I, I, I am very open to that possibility. But what the hell is Charlie trying to say there? Like, I don't know if I'm racist or I missed something. <laughs> or the movie's trying to make you racist. Maybe. I mean, because I, I always feel bad when I have to this turn movie on something. This is Adolf Hitler's favorite movie, you know. I guess, I mean, I guess there is a lot. As we're talking about the uh, racism social commentary, that's actually a great thing to bring up because I'm actually very surprised that – I'm surprised and not surprised at the same time that this is one of Hitler's favorite movies because – you know, they you, you've got black you've got a large black creature in chains, which of course you know Hitler was very into putting people in chains. Um, you know, marginalized groups that he didn't like. I know he wasn't really since there weren't a lot of black people in 1930s and 40s Germany. That wasn't really the uh, the focus of his ire, but obviously you know you know Jews were. But yeah, to to see Hitler or to hear that this is one of Hitler's favorite movies is odd because I, I would love to know how he looks at this movie. You know what I mean? Like, does he look at this as a racist allegory or does he look at this as, ah, white Westerners, you know, uh, completely owning uh, black people on an, on a, you know, deserted island, not deserted island, but like, you know, hard to find island, Skull Island. You know, yeah. it's just it's really weird to think about why he likes this movie. But, you know. Another one of the secrets that he'll take to the uh, Don, come on in on some social commentary. Is, is it the kind of thing you even notice the social commentary? Are you... uh, I'm pretty famous for not catching it unless it's specifically pointed out to me beforehand, or I know about it just from general hearsay. Like I am completely oblivious to anything. It took me, it took me until 2010 to realize Dawn of the Dead was about consumerism. Like, <laughs> like that was that's basically how I was. Like I, I am completely oblivious to any kind of social commentary unless it's you know, 
it just so overtly obvious that it just beats you over the head with it, or it's something I know about going in. Yeah. Like, you know, okay, I, you know, the Candyman remake is about, you know, the plight of the black people in modern America. Okay, I know that going in. It's obvious. I, you know, I, you know, now I know it. You know, I can mm-hmm. look for it. But yeah, unless I know beforehand, I am just completely oblivious and it just goes over my head. Now, I I do know that a lot of what's going on in here, it does relate to, you know, the plight of, like you said, the black man, you know, the wild, untamed savage that comes to new worlds and screws things up and needs, you know, the domineering white man to put him in place. Mm-hmm. I, I I can kind of see where they're coming from. I it's it's more of a reach. I think it's just more the fact that, you know, I don't really see it as an allegory for black people. It just it's just a giant ape, you know, like that, you know, I don't see that as like I, I, I see where they're coming from because, you know, the the common depiction of like the low black man is, you know, like akin to an ape and stuff like that. Like, like, I know, like, that's like a lot of the common, you know, like the common themes and that, but I don't think that that, you know, like you said, that was really the intention of what was going on. You know, it's the way I look at it. It was just an ape. That was just the animal they chose mm-hmm. because, you know, it, you know, I, I think it was probably just, you know, like one of the easiest things that Willis O'Brien could have, you know, created because, you know, he walks, you know, one of the, the few issues I have with it is the fact that no, None of the, you know, nothing in this is, is you know, scientifically accurate. Like, mm-hmm. for, an ape, he does, he, for an ape, he walks up on two legs like a man. He, apes walk on their knuckles. Yep. So, you know, yeah, to me, I just looked at it when I, when I first saw it. I initially took it as just, you know, Willis O'Brien had a hard enough time creating the dinosaurs in Lost World from 1925 mm-hmm. that he just figured, okay, you know, enough of that, you know, enough of that stuff. I'm just going to create something that's easier for me to work with so you know an ape is an easy thing to work with because it's essentially a human being so i'm just going to make it move like a human sure so uh, to me that was how i originally took at it yeah i can see it now where a lot of the arguments are coming from but if you wouldn't have said anything i wouldn't have noticed no that's valid i mean you know obviously there's a lot of people who don't look for subtext when they're watching films and that's valid you know there's nothing wrong with taking a movie at face value um, for me, I didn't think that the racism was glaring until we got to Broadway. That image of Kong chained up on stage, very reminiscent yeah. of slaves, you know, up on the auction block, you know, being sold to slave owners, plantation owners, things like that. That was striking to me the first time I saw it. I mean, even the pose where they've got him chained with his arms above him. I'm like, man, that feels almost like a purposeful choice. To, to, to kind of give us shades of like, you know, the, the slave trade and things like that. Again, I don't want to put words in the director's mouth. Maybe it was completely unintentional. But yeah, that was the one thing that struck me was just that image of Kong chained on stage. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty uh, iconic. It's a scene, you know. Yeah, it really is, ultimately. Um, let's talk about some of the themes of like colonialism in this one, which kind of still falls in a way under racism, but still like more specifically in this one, how, you know, a team of explorers from the West invade the fictional Skull Island, whose inhabitants, as I already said, are depicted as black people. 
um, to the point where, you know, Kong is even viewed by many as the fearless leader of these people, you know, a warrior, you know, forcibly shackled and transported to a different world. It's almost like he's, I hate to say, I hate to use words like poster child, but you could kind of make the argument that he's kind of like the poster child for the slave trade. That that image, like I said, that iconic image, it's so powerful. It really is a powerful image if it's something that's in your radar. Obviously, if you know racism and slavery and things like that isn't something that you think about often, then you might not see it. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not going to call a viewer blind or stupid because they didn't see these, to me, very obvious um, commentary about you know racism or colonialism, things like that. But, it, you know, like I said, it, 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 it's viewer to viewer. It's based on how we consume our entertainment, how we consume our art. You know, some of us want to take it at face value. Some of us want to read, you know, uh, in between the lines, if you will. But definitely the colonialism here, like I said, um, uh, you know, with Kong being taken from the island. Now, obviously, we don't see uh, Kong being transported from uh, Skull Island to New York. And I wonder if that was a purposeful choice, too, because to show King Kong chained on a ship headed to America, that's even a stronger. Um, yeah. Yeah. That would have been too much. So I'm very, for whatever it's worth, both for the runtime and for the commentary, I'm glad they didn't put that scene in well, there. Well, I always, I always took it more as just, you know, the inadvertent nature of how inefficient it would be to actually go from the South Pacific up to New York. Like to me, to me, the fact is, is that, you know, the Panama Canal is not going to let that thing go through. Like that's just an insurance hazard. They're not going to go around South America up the Cape of Magellan and sail all the way back up to New York. You know, that's going to take a year and a half. So the fact that they're just automatically arrive in New York to me, that was always just a plot hole that I thought, Okay, yeah. How the world are they going to get from the South Pacific to New York? Like, mm-hmm. it, to me, that was always the way I looked at it. Not necessarily like the idea of, oh yeah, we're going to just go to the strange island, grab this thing, and take it back to America and auction it off. Like, I, yeah. I, I see where you're coming from with the idea of seeing him on sure. the ship because you see that in the '76 version, and yeah, that's a really weird choice just to see him on there in the '76 one. But yeah, I, I see where you're coming. Yeah, I mean, even in the brand new one, in Godzilla vs. Kong, we see Kong chained up, you know, on a ship headed back to the hollow earth or wherever the hell they were going. So, and that's a powerful image. I mean, you know, as as much as I don't want to look at a gorilla and think of a black man, it's one of those insults that's kind of, you know, developed uh, a strength over the decades. You know, people saying monkey and, you know, stupid racist comments like that. So obviously yeah. with Kong being a giant gorilla, sometimes it's really just hard to kind of avoid that stuff. Um, there's also themes in this movie of environmentalism. And once again, you can kind of make the argument that every creature feature has a little tinge of environmentalism to it. Godzilla, obviously with its nuclear, um, you know, with its attack and the creation of Godzilla, um, same thing with like the ants from them, you know, they were created by radiation, you know, bomb tests in the Mojave Desert. Um, so obviously there's a lot of environmentalism in these movies, but I, I, I kind of saw that, especially in during the New York Rampage. I don't know about you guys, but as I'm watching the New York Rampage, I'm like, wow, this is nature raging against society if I've ever seen it. 
You yeah. know, I, he was taken away from his home against his will. And now he's in this place with buildings and cars and buses and all of these things that he doesn't understand. And he just wants to destroy all of it. And, you know, ultimately, it's incredibly valid. I mean, what did, what did you guys is that something that you guys notice or, or, or am I reaching on this one? Uh, not really, because I, I actually, uh, no, I, I, I did notice it. I always, because it's the first movie that I actually do this, you know, it's, it's one of the first. Because, uh, you know, it's mentioned by Lee Gammon a few times in his novel uh, about eco-horror. It, it's a very, in, yeah, it's a, a creature going out of his environment and what's going to happen? He's going to act the way that any other creature would act. We, this happens in, like, you know, Revenge of the Creatures, another good example where they take the gill man out of his environment and put him in a fucking mm-hmm. chained him in sea world, you know, like fucking, and then what you, you, you get mad because he gets pissed and escapes. Yeah. He's just doing <laughs> what he's doing, you know, like he's going to go fuck people up, you know, like fuck you. You put me, you took me from my home where I wasn't even bothering anybody. <laughs> uh, I, I always associate, more with the 76 one just because I always think that one was a, was a little bit more political just be, mm-hmm. based on the time it was made so I always associated with that one just because of that and the fact that there's a better destru- there's a better rampage you know you actually destroy things there yeah. so I, I always associated more with the 76 one but I I definitely can tell where you know you would get that from this one from sure. the original uh, especially you know the scene where he pulls the you know he grabs the train and pulls it down and yes you know, you see, like, all the people, you know, screaming all over the place. Like, I, I can tell in that situation where it, you know, you could, where it would be logical to jump that kind of an assumption. It's just I've always associated it more with the 76 one just because I always figured, I always found that one was more political than this one. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, it, it's just one of those things that really kind of stuck out to me, I, mainly during the rampage. And and I see that in kaiju films all the time, too. Anytime Godzilla destroys Tokyo, it's a commentary that, you know, nature hates your technology and I'm going to smash it. Um, and which is very, very valid, um, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's probably a lot more commentary under here. I don't I don't want to spend three hours talking about the comment to the social commentary and the symbolism of King Kong. But, you know, we touched on a lot of it, which, you know, it, it, it's good for maybe folks who didn't see all of that stuff in the film, who's listening to our voices right now. Maybe that might open their eyes a little bit more and maybe even develop a new appreciation for the film, which is really you know, what I'm looking for. It's what we're all looking for when we do these podcasts. You know, we're talking yeah. about the things we love. We want you to also love the things we love. So, you know, obviously, <laughs> you know, we want you to watch these movies with our eyes, if that were ever possible, just because of the reverence and love that we have for these films. But, um, I, yeah. Ah, enough of the I, social commentary. Let's go on to some fun let's, stuff. Let's get into the elephant in the room. How do you guys feel about the close-up puppet of Kong? <laughs> I mean, it's when when you first see it, especially when it comes right after seeing the full body stop motion shot, it's a little jarring. I will fully admit, like you're like, whoa, 
because they don't quite match the shade of coloring like the 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 head of Kong in close up uh, the the animatronic looks black almost but then when you're looking at the full length Kong it's more of a brownish color you know so well, there's, there's, there's little things like that but well there's a well there's a slight mm-hmm. difference mm-hmm. um if i remember if i remember correctly i re- i thought that the original the full body animatronic the one that Willis O'Brien was manipulating that one was covered with rabbit fur whereas uh, the giant skull was covered with bear with, with was covered with bear skin perfect thank oh. you don exactly yeah. what i was looking for i don't know why the hell i i was seeing such uh, major differences between the two obviously yeah. you know it's it's going to be hard to emulate a face from the stop motion from the full size stop motion puppet it's going to be hard to make a giant face with full articulation and yeah, you know yeah. emotions and everything but i you know ultimately i still think they did a pretty good job yeah i can see it being like scary like when it came out but like sometimes like when he just has people in his mouth too it's like i just die yeah I mean, people, the people in his mouth it, yeah that one's I, I i i it looks way too goofy and cheesy in those scenes it does i i definitely agree but I, I really like it more just as the sense of, you know, giving him like a close up, like looking down at people, yeah. like looking around and like, you know, just like observing what's going on rather than him actually like doing anything. I you know, love like the foot. The foot looks cool. I like that. Oh, the foot stomp kills. I like the stomp kills. Yeah. I thought those were great. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's very obvious that the ground is really, really soft, you know, to not hurt the actor. But if yeah. you can get past that, I think that was a great addition. I mean, that's something that they didn't have to do. Um, and they, you know, they probably could have put a, put together a good chunk of money to create that, you know, foot. But, yeah, I like that a lot. I thought that was a nice uh, added little touch just to yeah. give a little bit more, you know, icing on the cake. Yeah, because I, I like that, too, because uh, this is going to be a critique of stop motion. Mm-hmm. Stop motion people look oh. very Gumby-ish, you know. Like there's, there's no way around it in that sense, you know. You, you know, yes. and I, I do like that they mix it up and use actual like, interaction with the actual real people. Definitely, because, definitely. Because yeah. it's a, it's not even critique on this movie. It's just a critique on stop motion in general. It's really no, looks like that. I, I will say this: when whatever Harryhausen did with the dynamation technique that he did with the Sinbad films, the way that he inter- he got those creatures to interact with the people, I thought that one was a way, way more impressive technique than what O'Brien did. Oh, yeah. So I think that's yeah. the one area where I think that's I think that's the one thing that I'll give Harryhausen over O'Brien was that he you know whatever that dynamation thing that he came up with, whether that was just because he had more time to innovate it because he had more time you know to work with it because O'Brien died like before you know. I think like oh, Harryhausen has like thirty years to experiment it, whereas O'Brien was only working on this for like what eight nine years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, yeah, because this was like the original Lost World is twenty five, and this one's thirty three, so that's eight years. Whereas yeah. O'Brien, you know, you know Harryhausen had like you know an extra twenty or thirty years since then to perfect the technique. So yeah, I think that's just a matter of him having more time to play with it and have like get like a better handle on what it could do but that's the one thing that i will admit that he does better at is integrating people into the scenes with the creatures because mm-hmm. the dynamation stuff in the sinbad the sinbad films whatever he did with that they look incredible yeah yeah whereas, really the stuff, yeah whereas the stuff here you know yeah like derek said 
head, it looks like, you know, you've got like a Gumby thing running around on a treadmill on the bottom of the screen. And it, <laughs> it does look kind of distracting at times. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, right along the same lines with effects, what do you guys think of the dummy deaths in this movie? I actually think these are some of the better dummy deaths I've ever seen. Like throwing a dummy over a cliff or whatever. Like compare compare Frankenstein from the year before. Frank or wait or the same year. What what was the original Frankenstein? Thirty two or thirty three? I forget. Thirty one. Thirty one. Even even earlier. So yeah, this is only two years removed from that, and I think that the dummy deaths here are head and shoulders better than what we see in Frankenstein, and that's coming from Universal too. So I just wanted to point that out that some of the dummy deaths here look really great. Specifically, the final fall, that fall when um, John and Anne are going down the rope, and King Kong pulls the rope back up. When they fall and they show the dummies falling down, it's legitimately thrilling. Like, yeah. uh, did you notice yeah. how close the Fay Ray dummy came to hitting the rock? It was, like, almost right there. Like, I was convinced she was going to hit that rock. And that just adds a level of suspense to it that, um, you know, if they tried to do that on purpose, they probably wouldn't be able to reproduce it. But, yeah, uh, really wonder, nice dummy. How many, I wonder how many takes it took to make sure that the dummy didn't hit. That's true, because, man, it was so close. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, I don't see them making, like, a dozen dummies and destroying them all <laughs> until they you get know, the right shot. <laughs> you know what made that scene even greater? If Fay Ray's, like, dummy head just fell off, and then, oh, it's fine. You know, like, she just, just gets a scene. <laughs> <laughs> or more, yeah. yeah, I'm saying, I mean, I can imagine, like, a Corman movie doing something like that. I wouldn't imagine, like, a big studio program. Yeah, RK. Oh, yeah, yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't see them doing that. I would see them doing like two or three extra takes. Yeah. Like I'm saying, like, I wonder how many times they had to do that with to make sure that the dummy like that's the, like I mean, I know what Venom's coming at, but I can I would like to have known how many takes it took to make sure that they got they got the shot where it yeah. whereas you look at the ending where he falls off, you want to make sure that he actually does hit. So I wonder how many times each of those falls took. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Now, that's some trivia we'd like to find out. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. But uh, one thing, another thing I wanted to point out, uh, great cameo by the Loch Ness Monster. I was very yeah. impressed. <laughs> Nessie making an appearance in King Kong in a very impressive scene, I might add. Like, um, the scene of that brontosaurus just tearing people up, I think is really, really well done. Before King Kong even gets to the scene, just that brontosaurus just tearing those people up, I thought was awesome. Like, I actually pointed it out in my notes that, you know, Nessie is fucking these people's lives up. Good job. Yeah, except for that one idiot that climbs a tree, he deserved to die so bad. Yeah, that was great. Like, like, why would you climb a tree? It's a long-necked fucking dinosaur. It's going to fucking get you, idiot. Yeah. Later in the movie, after they get to Broadway, uh, one of the extras is heard saying, hey, you, you, you better have come. I spent $20 on this ticket uh, just out of curiosity, and I actually found it funny. Um, $20 in 1933 is equal to $420 today. And anyone who knows me knows I am a gigantic cannabis uh, proponent, and I just found it kind of funny. So if you want to go see King Kong on Broadway today, it'll cost you 420 bucks. Crazy. Yeah, you, you got to remember, too, this movie takes place during the Depression, too, so there's a lot exactly. of that going on, too, within the movie. Exactly. You know, like, I spent $20 on this. Come on. You know, you got to go see it, or I'm fucking going to beat the shit out of you. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> <Yep. laughs> <laughs> you know, like fucking making you spend that much money, you know? <laughs> and then 
What do you think about like throughout the movie? I never really think that King Kong is like like a malicious monster out to destroy and kill. You know, he's a he's he's out of his element. He's confused. He knows that he likes Faye Ray, so he's chasing her around, pretty much destroying everything in his path. But what did you guys think of his one, the one uh, victim in the movie that you could actually say he flat out murdered? That woman that he pulled out of bed and then throws her out the window. Like, <laughs> why did they add that to the movie? Because it's like it, it felt like all through the movie they were trying to make King Kong somewhat of a sympathetic character. But then out of nowhere, he just pulls a woman out of bed and fucking drops her off the Empire State Building or whatever building he was climbing. <laughs> well, it's because it wasn't Anne. He was looking for Anne at that point. Yeah. That's that was the way I always looked at it, whereas it was showing, like, how great, like, like how great his his desire was to, like, find her and, like, to, to like, you know, get a sense of, like, what's going on because you know he's in this new location he's in this new environment and the only thing that he, i mean he saw her on the platforms and he saw her with the other people so he knows that she's around somewhere but yet all of a sudden you know like you know he's looking around and then oh blonde woman oh wait no that's not you and then he throws yeah he's like throwing away like somebody something. else's like, toy you know like you know, but like, i'm saying is that you know you know but he's saying that like, he knows this he knows that specific one because he remembers her from sure the island and he remembers her from the ceremony or on the platform but yeah. he's just he doesn't he's not like smart enough to like differentiate who's who so he's just looking around and saying oh blondes and then grabbing her going oh wait no wrong one and then just is like yeah i don't want you and <laughs> i've i've been there like, okay, yeah like time to go on the search again yeah yeah absolutely yeah. um yeah, I, I don't want to look at it as him being malicious as saying, oh, nah, she's not the one, so I'm just going to throw you to your death. But, you know, I, 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 I'm accepting of the fact that maybe he didn't know that she would die from that fall or whatever. Just the fact that she he looked at her, realized it wasn't the right blonde, and just dropped her the way any child would. The only difference, this child is on top of a 50-story building. So, yeah, yeah. kind of weird, but what are you going to do? Um well, I also wanted to point out the score for when the planes take off. There's a piece of music that plays that is really, really ominous, and I love that because I don't think you even understand necessarily the importance of those – on first watch, I mean, as you're first watching the movie, you don't really even understand the importance of those planes and the role that they're going to play later in the film, and that piece of music that they use – perfectly sets that up like i remember just thinking that music is way more ominous than it should be but when you really think about it it makes sense because ultimately that is king kong's death right there you know those planes coming and filling them full of lead for the love of you know one little blonde woman um they're pretty heavy i just thought it was a pretty heavy thing that i had forgotten about um Mm-hmm. I just I wanted to point out uh, once again, another nice shot that doesn't involve um, stop motion. The shot of King Kong climbing the building. It's 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 a far shot. You know, it's a long shot. It's from far away. And it's basically it almost looks like it's cell shaded animation yeah. with like a little King Kong just kind of climbing the right side of the building for the time. I want to say that was a great shot. Like. As I'm looking at it last night, I was really impressed with it. Like, you know, obviously it's not like stellar 3D, you know, modern animation by any stretch. But again, for 1933, I thought it looked amazing. I thought that was a really nice shot. 
uh, setting up our, our finale too. basically going into our, you know, final sequence of the planes coming in and attacking Kong. Uh, another thing I'd forgotten was how sad that ending is. Like Kong doesn't just get shot and die. Like he is up there for a while, pretty much knowing that he's about to die. You know, he's, he's grabbing at the, the, the wounds that the bullets have made. Um, you can see at one point he picks up Faye Ray, but then puts her right back down. I don't know if that was like almost like his way of saying goodbye, but like his death is actually more drawn out than I remembered it being. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, I, I definitely yeah. forgot that. I definitely forgot that too. I thought it was to me I, for some strange reason it was always like I had remembered two. The, there was two plane passes. He, the, he hits. <laughs> One on the he hits the one when they're coming back on the third time, and then they do that third one, and then that's the one where he it's the you know all three planes fly by they each make their pass and then bam he falls. Yeah, I I had always remembered it like that for some reason, but yeah, I definitely never remembered like there was a lot of this the little stuff of him just like grabbing at the tower, yeah. like flying. Losing his balance, yeah. Losing his balance, yeah, I definitely had forgotten that. I thought that one was always in the Peter Jackson one. Because I always always thought that one was like the long, protracted, you know, emotionally charged one. That one, I'd always always thought that one was the case. For some reason, like the original one for me was always just, it was like a lot more clinical. Like it was just getting it over with and getting, like stopping him, like just, you know, like putting it in putting it into him but yeah i definitely did catch it catch it this time yeah yeah very sad i mean the the emotions definitely took me this time i just you know obviously you know you spend years and years decades with these characters like you know king kong godzilla gamera rodan whatever you want to go with giant monsters that we know and love but Man, it's kind of like watching the original King Kong, uh, excuse me, the original Godzilla again. Like, that was another one that I had gone almost a decade without watching until recently and forgot that that ending is, like, legitimately sad if you're a fan of King, uh, of Godzilla, you know? Um, But, yeah, this one was definitely, you know, again, tugging at the heartstrings. And then, of course, uh, you know, King Kong's incredibly dramatic death leads us to potentially one of the most iconic final lines in cinematic history. Um, You know, uh, when the uh, skipper basically makes, or not the skipper, but one of the police officers on the ground makes the comment to Carl Denham that, you know, those planes uh, did the trick. And then, of course, he corrects them and says, no, it was beauty that killed the beast. And that is such an epic line when you really think about it. Yeah, I mean, absolute mic drop. Yeah, and and then to think about, I mean, because because Kong, you can basically say Kong is kind of obsessed with Fay Ray, you know, like so there are so many white blonde women throughout his path as he's uh, rampaging New York, but it's just this one in particular, you know, the very first white woman that he's probably ever seen. And, uh, you know, aside from the racial commentary there, which I'm going to skip completely because uh, I'm going to just get myself in trouble, um, (laughs) you know, uh, just the obsession of it all. Like, that was something that struck me with this viewing that had never hit me before is King Kong's, you know, near obsession with this woman. And it is that obsession that really is the cause of his death. Yes, the bullets 
cause the wounds in his body that made him bleed out and made his heart stop. Sure. That's what it'll say on his death certificate. If giant monsters get a death certificate. Um, but yeah, I mean, what a, what a poignant line and definitely kind of a little bit of a gut punch too. I mean, when you're really, really into the film and, and that last line hits you just right, it really leaves you with a somber feeling aside from seeing this awesome monster die, you know, I mean, in in the real world, if King Kong actually existed, it would be an incredibly sad thing to see him die because he's the last of his kind. And yeah. even though, yes, he was rampaging, he was killing, he was destroying property, he's still one of a kind. And that's something that should be revered, not feared. So uh, another obvious and, theme. Uh, of the film. Mm-hmm. No, more importantly, you also have to remember, this is a 50-foot animal that weighs however many tons falling mm-hmm. from around a thousand feet yeah, crashing onto solid cement. I don't think there's going to be that much left of him. Uh, or the people around there. I mean, he, the, the seismic yeah. uh, blast that he would have created by his body landing. I mean, yeah. once he hits terminal, what is it? Terminal velocity. He's right. going to basically destroy um, the entire area down there. It's going to be covered in gorilla blood and guts and, there's just going to be dead bodies and cars flipped over and everything. Yeah, I understand. It, Obviously, we know why they didn't do it. It's 1933, blah, blah, blah. It would be a right. darker version of Ghostbusters, and <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, very much so. Um, I mean, yeah, not to pile on, but yeah, no. If it was actually true to form, that's how it would probably <laughs> end. Yeah, it would have been a mess that they would have been cleaning up for weeks, I'm sure. Um, I mean, you know, my final comment is ultimately, you know, this, this, this movie at its core is a very simple movie. It's a simple concept, but it's so incredibly poignant, both more so back then, but it even still holds a lot of social commentary for what's going on today with the social issues that we're dealing with today, colonialism, classism, things like that. So I mean, this movie is a classic in every way. I don't see that ever changing. Um, it, I, as I said, I, I tend to gravitate more towards Skull Island or 1976, but this movie really, really is a time capsule, and it's just an incredibly, incredibly important film. Uh, anything else you guys want to close out with? No, I just wanted to point out a fun fact. The two pilots that were in the one plane that we kept seeing, like the those of the pilots. Those are actually the directors of the movie. Oh, nice! That's Marion and Ernest. Yeah, the cameos. So that's a fun cameo, you know. You know, uh, yeah, it's just a time capsule of a film that I think a lot of people should check out. And I have not much more to say about it. I say thumbs up and check it out. Yeah, same here. Um, I can't really reiterate anything original. Just. You know, Stone Cold classic and something that's going to be around long after we're going to be gone, <laughs> and for good reason. So, yeah, yeah uh, you know, if we haven't convinced you to check this one out, put this on the top of your list immediately. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, even if you don't appreciate the effects or it's too dated for you, I mean, look at the themes in the film. It, it's a very important film for multiple reasons. So, yeah, uh, one that should be. Uh, enjoyed at the very least appreciated by anyone who would consider themselves a cinephile. So yeah. All right, folks. Well, 
that was episode one of No More Room in Hell presents Creature Comforts. Really, really hope that you guys enjoyed yourself. If you have any feedback for us, any movies that you'd like to see us cover, any segments potentially or questions for us, go ahead and hit us up on our Facebook page. Um, as you listen to this, our Facebook page should be open. Um, and then on episode two, I'll go ahead and relay the information for our Twitter and Instagram as those have still not been created, but they will be created very soon. And last but not least, thank you, Don and Derek. Found my place, and it's me on top of the world. I am King Kong, drop the gate. I hear the chariot coming today. I am King Kong. I'm King Kong. I'm King Kong. I'm King Kong. I'm King Kong. Beat my fist in check. I don't feel the pressure. Show the world the best, I endure the pain, let the gorillas out, ignore the chains, now all my yellows out, thou half forsaken me, finally back making heat, cooking like a bakery, now there ain't no breaking me, down with my ancestors wish that they could see me now, I'm the best, no question, ain't no testing me. Yeah.